Hi, I'm Jane Jackson. And I'm Colin Denny. And you're listening to A Better Workplace from Wistia. This week marks the 156th Juneteenth celebration. And for those of you who aren't familiar, Juneteenth is celebrated every year on June 19th. And it celebrates the day in 1865 when freed slaves in Texas were the last ones to finally get the word that slavery was abolished. And this was two months after the end of the Civil War and over two years after Lincoln had signed the Emancipation Proclamation. Having always been an important event in the black American community, only in the last few years with the increase of racial and social justice awareness has its importance grown in corporate and political spaces. And so as of the publishing date of this episode, we'll be just two days out from Juneteenth, and we wanted to tackle a subject that is intimately connected to the black community in America, and particularly in the workplace, and that is code switching. At its basic definition, code switching is simply the process of switching back and forth between different styles of speaking, mannerisms, and potentially ways of acting when going from one situation to another. You can have forms of code switching that transcend race. Many people may speak differently when around their hometown friends than when in the workplace, whether that's dropping an accent, changing their language, or changing their mannerisms or actions. For the purposes of today's episode, we're going to address the aspect of code switching that is most often thought about when we talk about it here in the U.S., and that's when black people speak one way at work or with their white friends and another way when they're talking to their black family and friends. And there's all kinds of comedic examples of this in pop culture, like the Key and Peele's Obama meet and greet sketch, for example. And may God bless America. Jordan Peele's playing President Obama and goes down a line of press and political officials shaking their hands, greeting them after a press conference. And what's funny about it is the way he greets the black people in line is totally different than the way he's greeting other people. Jerome Smith. Come on, What's up, fam? <laughs> you know this. Keith Williamson. Nice to meet you. Mary right. Woodbury. Nice to meet you. Jay Martell. Nice to meet you, sir. Tasha Robinson. Come on, come oh. on, come on. <laughs> Feel that? Emily George. Feel that? And the sketch cracks me up because as funny as it is, it's inspired by the fact that President Obama was actually known for code switching in his role as he navigated different settings and audiences. Okay, let's be real honest. Obama would not be president if he didn't know how to effectively code switch. He's really adept at reading his audience and then putting forth an American English that they can relate to. In that short clip from the Huffington Post video series, Between the Lines, on the topic of code switching, you hear Taryn Finley of the Huffington Post and Professor Renee Blake of NYU commenting on Obama's ability to code switch. The short documentary goes on to reference the various ways in which code switching can have a profound impact on the lives of Black Americans. There is perhaps no clearer common example of code switching than in the workplace. Today on the show, we're going to do a deep dive into code switching with someone who knows it really well. Today's guest is Brandy Blocker Anderson. She's the founder of the Anti-Racism Academy, an attorney, a podcaster, and a corporate trainer in issues related to diversity and inclusion. She also grew up in some rougher neighborhoods of South Philly and went on to get degrees from three Ivy League universities and work in a prestigious law firm. As a black woman with stark contrast in her background and schooling, she's the perfect person to engage in this topic of code switching. 
have been excited about this episode for a long time because I feel like it is something that code switching is is something that is like it feels like it's kind of getting on the radar of a lot of people but uh this is like a very lived experience and something that has been hard to kind of articulate to people who aren't thinking about it or never have to do it this topic hits so close to home because so originally i'm from north philadelphia for context i went to six different public schools before the sixth grade both of my parents were addicts i definitely did not live the life that one would assume for someone who would have ended up where I am now. Fast forward to middle and high school, I was able to go to a scholarship-based boarding school from sixth to 12th grade that really helped me and set me up on a path to success. But I think even before that, something that I think set me apart from my classmates and made my majority white teachers want to quote unquote save me was my abilities and code switch from an early age. So this topic really resonates with me. I actually recently published a piece on PBS Teachers Lounge where I talk about how having somewhat of a survivor's remorse because because I was able to quote unquote talk like a white girl. That's what made teachers like want to, you know, make sure I got into a school like Gerard College, which is the, the private school I ultimately went to. But I was able to, by the grace of God, go to Yale undergrad. Um, I got my master's in education from the University of Pennsylvania, and then I went to Columbia for law school. So I had my lived experience has sort of been like always straddling two different worlds. So mm-hmm. like, during the the week, um, you know, I'm at a private school you know, with all of the, the sort of protections and resources that my my mom couldn't otherwise give me being a single mother struggling with an addiction. But then I went home on the weekends and it's ironic because a lot of my classmates, like going back to elementary school, assumed I was from the suburbs or they thought that, you know, I was living a whole other lifestyle because of the way I presented. And it's it's funny because I don't even know what told me to start doing it, but I noticed the difference between the way that I heard, you know, folks on television speak, or white people in particular. And I think even my mom, to a certain degree, like I noticed that she had a different tone that she would put on when she was, you know, interacting with, you know, some kind of authority or something like that. So I think early on that that switch flipped for me. But, you know, fast forward to my law school application, I actually was able to explicitly name that as something that sort of gave me a leg up. But I guess after, you know, breaking into these elite, predominantly white spaces and, you know, realizing that, well, one, how just confining it is to constantly be wearing a facade that Mm -hmm. may or may not represent who you truly are and constantly be worrying about the way that you come across, your subject verb agreement, all, all of these things just to prove that you're worthy. And I think for a lot of folks, like me, you get to a certain point where you're just like, to heck with this, right? I'm not going to perform for you. And so at a certain point I had to find a balance where I had to be like myself, but at the same time, recognizing that I'm working within a world that, you know, if you present a certain way, the assumption is that, you know, you're less intelligent. And it's funny because the the more the further you get in this world, the more you realize that it doesn't matter. People people don't care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, or you know, their biases are so like deep set that you know you could be a person of color at the highest echelons and still get mistaken for 
the, you know, and no disrespect to administrative staff or, you know, I hear you hear all the time about attorneys getting mistaken for the defendant when they're in court or some kind of like court clerk yeah. as opposed to the attorney or yeah. getting mistaken for the nurse or the um, the nurse's aide instead of the doctor or whatever, what, whatever it is, you know, people don't know what your resume is when they meet you. And so I've said a lot. So I'll stop there. Um, no, I'm, I mean, this is, this is what it is. I, I think this is great because I think really what what it is to me and what you're describing is if anyone is wondering what code switching truly is, like my elevator pitch, so to speak, is that it's what people of color have to do to get their proximity to whiteness. That That's a little blunt, <laughs> but uh-huh. but I mean, that's really what it is. And And I feel like what's interesting about it is that it's never really something to me that is ever... There are like shared experiences, I think, that a lot of like black, brown and people of color have where like, you know, your parents might talk to you about a certain thing about the cops pull you over or if someone's like asking you where you're from or whatever. But this is something that like isn't so hand to mouth, I guess, in terms of like explaining what it is. It's just kind of something that everybody it feels to me inherently learns in order to navigate your way through a lot of professional and often personal experiences and and what's funny about it is the success if you want to call it that is usually rooted in one like how good you are at it and that feels both like pertinent to say but also I kind of hate saying it because it's you know we don't want really want to think about like well how well can you approximate yourself to whiteness but to me that's always felt like the the game so to speak Definitely. And I think a lot of, you know, for a long time, a lot of uh, employers have used these things, these indicators as shorthand for quote unquote fit, which, you know, this idea of someone being a good fit is no doubt in many ways, in many in many instances, rooted in white supremacy or, you know, these sort of unspoken norms that are imposed on people of color that many of us may or may not even recognize, it, you know, that, that we're being sort of vetted for. And I can think of a number of examples from popular culture that really resonated with me. So one example I can think about, and um, I know I'm going to lose my like black woman card, but I, I don't <laughs> follow all the seasons of Insecure, but I do know there was a, a a story arc where the character Molly, who is a black woman working in a law firm, which definitely resonated with me at the time because I worked in a law firm. She deals with a situation where a younger black female associate comes into the firm and she's like very much like keeping it real, quote unquote. So she's like, speaking in AAVE and she's like, you know, the life of the party kind of like energy. You ain't never lie, but for real, I was shadowing Meryl and Johnson on the chin case and I had to send myself to HR because Johnson is on. And so Molly is feeling this inner tension about, you know, like, should I say something to her because she's not following the rules, right? She's not focusing on assimilating and not bringing attention to her blackness or her difference. If you want to be successful here, you got to know when to switch it up a little bit. Hmm. I appreciate your feedback, but I didn't switch it up in my interview with the senior partners and I didn't switch it up when I was named editor of the law review. So I don't think I need to switch it up now. And sort of me feeling like, you know, I was that, that, 
that associate who wanted to come in and be, you know, you hear all of this messaging about we embrace difference, we want diversity, yada, yada. And so, you know, obviously you have to so recognize, you know, professional decorum, but to be able to, you know, not always speak in, you know, the, the perfect Queen's English or to be able to, you know, make, you know, inside jokes amongst other people of color and, you know, make the make the space a place where you feel welcome or, you know, able to connect with people is something that I certainly valued. Also recognizing that, you know, we still have this like double consciousness thing going on, this veil where, you know, the way that we as black people in particular are seen is always through this lens of whiteness and mm-hmm. and you know how how much we measure up to that and you know how much can we get away with because there there's certain um, work environments that can sort of encourage that kind of thing but you know there's always limits and then you have the old guard who came up in a space where you know you put your head down and you don't bring attention to it so that creates these tensions like between Molly and the, the other character that example is so stark to me that i think it sort of plays out between folks who are pushing the envelope and you know wanting to be themselves in in a space that historically has not really made space for people to be as expressive or to you know wear the clothes they want to wear or to even talk about you know their interests that are outside of the the dominant culture or the norm so yeah. Uh, well, two things. Number one, absolutely love Insecure. It's like maybe my favorite show of the last like five years or or more. Two, hitting on your mention of AAVE specifically for the listeners, that is African-American vernacular English. I think that might be the top of the list in terms of like what is entailed in, in code switching. And because, you know, typically that is viewed as something that is either unprofessional or unintelligent sounding, you know, like someone could be saying the exact same thing, but for, for people who deliver their, you know, their cadence and way of speaking a certain way, it's taken more seriously. Right. So I just love that you called that out because I feel like that's, that's one of the the primary examples, I think. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, I think it's one of the issues that come up when people complain about cultural appropriation and more particularly the sort of new, I mean, it's not a new idea, but I think it's a sort of new term, this idea of a black scent. It's an idea that people, so white folks in particular, you know, get to use AAVE in a way that adds to their brand or their personality. And it's seen as like fun and acceptable and cool. And, you know, if you have all of these examples of black vernacular making their way into the, the, you know, the common lexicon and, and it's, and it's, it's okay, but you know, if black people engage in the same behavior, then you know, you're seen as less than. And I think that's, you know, a lot of the problem um, when you have black creators or, you know, presenters, teachers, you know, people who, you know, have an outward facing persona who feel this pressure to constantly perform a certain version of their identity to push back against stereotypes. And it, it becomes a, a heavy load to carry to worry about these things. And there is something liberating about being able to speak your native tongue in spaces and have that be valued. When you go into new spaces that you're not familiar with, to what extent is this kind of like a conscious processing to figure out where you feel safe, comfortable going? A big part of it is, you know, who introduces you to the space can kind of set the tone for 
one's level of comfort. And I think, you know, there are a lot of cues that go into the calculation. So I think for most people of color, the first assessment you make whenever you walk in a room is like, how many other people of color are in this space? Are there potential allies here? And just because there are other people of color doesn't mean you necessarily, you know, have those allies, but that's something you kind of suss out, you know, being new to a workplace. And, you know, for me, I always like make it a point to make friends with administrative staff and people don't necessarily think of are the people to like get in with. Cause I think those people like can give you the most information about the, the culture that you're working in. And oftentimes those tend to be, be, be people of color or women who sort of have their, their pulse on the, on the work environment and, you know, sort of help to bring in new staff members and help them sort of, you know, in in an ideal um, scenario. But I think there's a lot of factors. So does the environment, you know, encourage individuality? And you can kind of tell that by the way that the white people interact with each other. Like, is is everybody wearing a suit? Um, Do people refer Mm -hmm. to each other, you know, on a first name basis? Is there an open door policy, you know? If there are office get-togethers for, you know, a birthday, or are, are there even, you know, get together and have a, you know, a piece of cake in the hallway for such and such's birthday or a cocktail hour? Do people actually go? And then when you go, what are the topics of conversation? And I think through all of that, you can kind of get a, a sense for what the workplace sort of values. And then, you know, even within that, you look for okay, if, even if this is the dominant, like, are there at least safe people, safe spaces, people who, you know, kind of give you that cue, hey, like, you know, come and talk to me, I'll give you the the heads up on, you know, what's going on, or I'll take you under my wing. And I think for me, where I've been most successful is where I've had um, those allies who like early on have say, said, hey, you know, this is kind of like what we do here. And sometimes it can be, kind of a, a shocker because I think a lot of organizations, they they aspire to be a certain way and a lot of organizations are in transition right now. So they might say one thing and that's something that a lot of people listen to when they come in. You know, we value diversity and inclusion and all of this, you get a lot of that talk. But then once you're in the organization for a while, you have to look around and see, well, are they actually living out what they say that they're about. So if I raise my hand to make a suggestion, am I listened to? Or do, do people feel comfortable even raising their hands in, in meetings? Right. Um, or is it kind of a top down, everybody kind of just falls in line? I have a question going back um, a little bit. When you describe kind of the cognitive load of coming into a new environment and f- and figuring out what code you need to adapt to, are there things that companies or leaders can do to make that less of a lift or less of an ongoing issue in their workplaces? So I think it requires companies to take a hard look at their both written and unwritten policies and, and practices and ask themselves, like, what kind of employee do we value here? What does it take to fit in here? And sometimes policies, whether, you know, written or not, can give off the impression that this is a this is a place where you have to do a lot of work to fit in. And so, you know, a part of that is just like, obviously, you know, just like diversity. So like just looking around and seeing like, are there people like me or not? 
And if you don't see anybody like you, then that's, you know, the, the, the cognitive load goes up. And I think when you come into a space where there's no one else like you or not even very many people who are not, you know, a white guy named Andrew. Um, and I just use it as an example because one of the places where I work, like there were just like five Andrews and like no, no offense to like white guys named Andrew. But like, if that's the majority of the people you see, you know, they, they all are like the same sort of age. They all went to the same kind of school. They all sort of dress the same. Then it's like, all right, like I'm definitely never going to be that. So like, how do I fit in with like a- Andrew? Right. So that's one piece. Another piece is, you know, even down to the dress code, like some businesses, you know, do you require business dress? Because if not, then I think, you know, a message that you send is, you know, everyone sort of like adjusts to the, the, the white male norm of like a suit. And then people sort of have to like, you know, women and other folks have to kind of like find their way around that and, you know, not upset that. You know, thinking of even the colors people wear or even the colors in your office. Like if everything is gray and blue and black and white, then like you send the message. And maybe that's, you know, the vibe you want to give off that, you know, everything needs to be sort of uniform and black and white. But I think that's another thing that, you know, at least on a subconscious level, sends that message to folks like, okay, I need to focus on assimilation more. But then it's also like, who do you have as your recruiters? Who do you have as the people who are the most external facing people, the people who invite people into the company and what vibe are they giving off? Because those people are, you know, your candidates or your employees first impression of the company. So it's similar in my mind to like, who do you have teaching the first years, uh, like uh, at, a, at a, at a law school or in a college course? Like most times you like a lot of places have like the worst people, like, or not the worst <laughs> people, but people who are not necessarily people People who like it takes some time to like grow on you. And it's like, no, keep those people away from the new recruits, right? Yeah. Like we need to like keep them under the impression that this this place is as collegial or you know whatever the buzz term that the the workforce uses. So I I do think there are things that employers can do to make that cognitive load a little bit lower or just give people a little more of a sense that their difference is going to be not only, you know, accept it, but encourage. Something else I think is when you have explicit, you know, diversity statements, like that always helps. I mean, it's not enough in and of itself, but it definitely does in a message. So like having a page on the website, you know, people look, people look at that stuff. Mm-hmm. People look at your branding materials. Even, you know, one place where I worked, there was a an award that they gave out for people who, you know, put effort or in, into making the the, the 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 environment more inclusive and equitable and that was in addition to other you know awards that weren't just about DEI and I think you know they were sort of just starting that process but I think that was something else that sent a message to everyone like oh one everyone likes to be able to win a prize or especially just like money but it's like oh this is something that the the company actually cares enough to like attach a value to those are all, you know, just like <clears throat> relatively small things, depending on the company's like budget or their their needs that they can do. In that insecure episode, I believe that the character is ultimately let go from that law firm. I'm curious if you kind of have lived with the the fear of guessing the code wrong, so to speak, or uh, the consequences of that in a business environment where it's not clear or um, not per- 
particularly open to diversity, frankly. I think that is a constant fear that all people of color generally live within these spaces, especially if they don't have sponsors or mentors or people within the organization that are specifically pulling for them and vouching for them and, and you know, ensuring that there is a path forward or, or at least helping to ensure that. I think mean, another phenomenon that people don't really talk about is a sort of quietly I like icing people out. So employers just thinking about the context of Title Seven kind of need like a smoking gun or, you know, some like, you know, evidence to be able to prove discrimination is occurring, but ways that you more subtle ways that people experience racial bias and, and gender bias in the workforce is just being allowed to slip through the cracks. The fear is around just like when they stop talking to you, like when no one says anything. And in, in some instances, people are so, and I should say like in particular, white employers, managers are often afraid to give criticism or to even take the time, either because they you know, either are afraid or that it'll come across wrong or they don't care enough. So if you don't do a good job on something, instead of taking the time to like sit with you and explain, you know, why this didn't go the way they wanted it to go, they'll just never work with you again. And you never hear why, you never get any feedback. And then you're kind of just left to languish, whereas other people can make mistakes and, you know, get that feedback and be trusted to give, be given another chance and to move up. So I think, you know, for a lot of folks, it's like just the questions. And then, you know, you, you just wait for that mid-year review or that end of the year review to, you know, to hear like, okay, I'm doing a good job. You mentioned mentors and sponsors, how can they be helpful in kind of mitigating these situations in the workplace? Mentors can one, like give, you know, someone who's newer into the space a sort of rules of the road as far as like things to look out for, things that will like help to advance your career, things to stay away from, people to like introduce themselves to. Yeah, ha make sure you have lunch with this person. You know, people to just give you those bits of advice, someone who you can, you know, ask for, you know, help. Like, hey, I have this issue. I'm not really sure to, to how to solve it. That person can tell you, okay, ask this person. But I think that is different than a sponsor. A sponsor is someone in an organization who not only, you know, has the capacity to do those things, but someone who has power. Um, I think that's the, the big difference. And like, it's all relative. But when I say power, I mean, like decision making power as far as advancement, decision making power as far as, you know, who gets what assignments, decision making power as far as when your name is up for discussion at the table, that person, when they vouch for you, that means something. And, you know, your name either like moves on to the next next phase or, you know, whatever it is, the decision is being made for you. Like that person has that weight to go to bat for you, so to speak. And I think so often without even thinking about it, white men in, in, in a majority are able to easily have these relationships because the, the older person in the firm, the person running the, the organization, you know, that that person reminds them of their son. That person, you know, you know, reminds them of them. And, and, you know, it comes very naturally to say, oh, well, let me let me, you know, give you give you a shot at this. Or, you know, if you mess up, not to assume that, like, that's, you know, indicative of like all like, your your worth, because, you know, I was there before and I remember I messed up on this assignment. So I'll give you another chance. One of the things I heard in a, a DEI training that I was a part of was this idea of royal jelly 
queen bees are not necessarily born. They are made because the other bees sort of come around the, the queen bee or the queen bee to be and like load it up with like what's what they call royal jelly to help it grow into a queen bee. So if one queen bee dies, they can make another queen bee. And so using that idea of royal jelly and applying it to how to mentor and sponsor people in these spaces, it's, it's the, asking the question of who are you giving royal jelly to? Who's giving royal jelly to you? What, what, what were those moments where someone pulled you to the side and gave you that piece of advice or gave you an opportunity to stretch and grow? And so making sure that you pay it forward because because nobody got to where they got to in their careers alone. So this is not something that's unique to people of color in workspaces. It's just figuring out how do we make sure people of color and women are included when we're spreading the royal jelly out and not just sitting back and saying, oh, well, there just aren't enough qualified people or, oh, people just don't want to be here or, you know, whatever excuses that I think lots of times it's easier to to come up with and to think about, you know, what we can actively do to help folks be more successful. One follow up I had to that, if you could talk about it a bit, is I want to make clear to the listeners that like code switching isn't always just about how we speak and everything. There's there's a there's a very visual element to it, too, in terms of how we dress. And I think very specifically, like how we wear our hair. And a lot of a lot of the time, this is specific to black women in terms of like, are they are they straightening their hair? You know, how do they wear it? So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and either your experiences or, or things that you've seen in your various workplaces and, and, you know, just a few examples of that. Even zooming out, I think there's a very gendered expectation of like coming across as like happy. So like, obviously you have like the stereotype of the angry black woman that black women have to compete against. But then you have just like this idea that like women who want to be successful need to like come across as like pleasant. And there's always like the pressure, like the smile. And, like There's just so much pressure on women in the workforce or in the workplace to perform gender in a certain way. So the expectations around hair and makeup place a disproportionate burden on many women. And then when you add race to it, then there's a whole other set of factors like like do y'all know how much a lace front wig costs do you know how much a bundle of weave costs to buy much less have installed i mean we're talking hundreds if not thousands of dollars that is an added pressure on many women or even women who don't wear hair extensions to have your hair relaxed or straightened or all of these things to fit into the dominant or the the, the eurocentric ideal of of professionalism and of beauty this idea of having you know straight hair like there's just such an economic burden on black women that that black women disproportionately face. Whereas, you know, our white female counterparts can wake up and, you know, maybe like wash and go or like, you know, comb their hair, throw it in a ponytail and they're good to go. Like black women are, you know, I know from personal experience um, before I locked my hair, I was a self-proclaimed weavologist. <laughs> which I mean, like, but which included like so many hours of just like straightening and making sure it's laid and you got to wrap it and throw your scarf on and you got to sleep right. And there's a lot. And that's, you know, before you even get to any other, you know, makeup or anything like that. And then when it comes to dress, a lot of workplace policies are very gendered. And and there's a way that you can express the decorum you expect without calling people out for, you know, wearing skirts or having dreadlocks that, you know, send a, send a screaming message like you're not welcome here. For me, I decided to lock my hair. So just to jump back to hair for a second, I decided to lock my hair in college. And so that was a, a decision I was making that I was sort of going to like 
completely eschew the idea that, you know, having natural hair is unprofessional. Because I think for a lot of black women still, it is a, a common belief and it's been a reality for many, many years. I think up until very recently, the military banned the, you know, having dreadlocks. And I, th- I want to say there there's still places in the United States where employers can fire you for having extensions or or locks. So, you know, my my decision making was, well, I don't want to work anywhere where that is a a rule. So I don't care. I'm going to lock my hair anyway. But I've definitely met people who've had locks and cut their hair before starting work. And it's just like, oh, my gosh, like that is like so heartbreaking mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. you know, people still feel like they can't be themselves, like literally wear the hair as it naturally grows out of your scalp. <laughs> like, right. Like th- that's still like a controversial thing in a lot of workplaces. And then when it comes to the dress piece, a lot of black women in particular, there's a struggle around what is seen as professional versus not. And so that could come in the form of like things that, you know, on me might look might look like, a, you know, I'm trying to like show off, you know, but just because of my natural like shape, it, the same outfit worn on like a petite white female counterpart and like no one flinches at, but it's the same exact outfit, but just because our body types are different. I think a lot of black women like have that, 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 that stress on, like, how do I look? Is this, like, that's always a question before you're going, is this too much? Is my butt poking out too much? So it's a real struggle to show up and to feel, you know, good about what you're in and not like you're, you're, you're standing out in a negative way. Most definitely. One last example of of the hair thing is like not that long ago, I was having a discussion about a sports related discussion and someone said like, oh, well, you know, it's it's kind of funny, you know, like, you know, in the 90s, early 2000s or whatever, like, you know, like bald was was like super everyone was bald. And now like people are wearing their hair all wild and everything. I'm like, well, I guess you could call it wild, but it's just that black men are letting their hair grow like. They're not, you know, they might be lining it up, but it's just growing. That is, that is what it looks like, except that it's still viewed as like something that's like wacky or exotic or, you know, it's like, well, it it doesn't grow straight. So I'm not sure what, what you were looking for. People see freeform locks as dirty or, you know, you look unkempt or not recognizing that, you know, there's a whole spirituality and there's a whole history and, you know, care process management behind it so you know it's not a product of someone not taking care of their hair it's just a different philosophy on how to care for one's hair and so i appreciate people who are like who are very visible like that who are at least putting themselves out there for people to do the research if if they are are interested in knowing but it's an exciting time it really is an interesting time because it feels like more of this is i wouldn't say it's necessarily being accepted in some way but it's at least being talked about and so i feel like that's always the first step is to you know it's it's in the public consciousness and then we can kind of have those finer tuned discussions around you know course correction of how we interpret and value these things what advice do you have for the ceos and leaders who are frankly primarily white men in our industry to help create more inclusive spaces for people? So I think the first thing is to one, make diversity, equity, and inclusion, specifically racial equity, but all kinds of diversity, equity, and inclusion 
a a tenant of what your organization does. It's not enough to have a training one day or over a couple of days and then kind of put that stuff to the side and keep moving about your day and expect transformative change within a workplace or to expect people to feel more welcome and to feel that they can thrive within a workspace. It literally has to be baked into the fabric and at the fore of every decision that gets made because so often many of us are coming into a situation where we have blind spots. You know, it's not our faults that we were born with the identities we were born to, but it is our job as people, as executives, as people who have the the ability to make a difference, to be cognizant. So that's 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 first and foremost. And so what that looks like for companies is to take the time to put together a statement. What does it mean for your company to value diversity, equity, and inclusion? Not just something that you you put up on your website and again, like, or you take some time thinking about it and then you put it in a drawer and move forward, but something that can be a guiding principle that can be applied to everything that you do from the way you serve your clients to the way you treat, you know, your managers to the way your managers treat the people under them. It has to be something that flows through. Another thing is to, you know, take taking a hard look at those written and unwritten policies and procedures, looking at advancement silos and asking the question, like, how does one become successful at XYZ company? Is it through, you know, you got to kind of be best friends with the boss (laughs) or, you know, do you have to come from XYZ background? Because I think the more people understand the pipelines that lead into their organizations where they, you know, where are you recruiting from? Then you can start to understand, well, you know, where the barriers are, are coming up for people who don't fit the norm. The the beautiful thing is that there are organizations and firms out there that help uh, companies with this work, including the Anti-Racism Academy. So I'll put in a, a little plug for the company. So we do executive coaching, live and asynchronous trainings around issues like interrupting and mitigating bias, practicing inclu- intentional inclusion techniques. So How do we make sure that when we make decisions, we have all voices represented at the table or as many as possible? And, you know, who's there asking, okay, whose voice are we missing? And by making sure we put in these safe, these stop guards to sort of stop and pause, that will, you know, at least start the journey onto becoming an anti-racist organization if that's what your company desires. I think other things, if your company can afford it, actually hiring staff who are dedicated to to doing this, oftentimes we see in companies that this becomes something that is added on to people's pre-existing responsibilities. And so it sends a message when you don't pay for these things, when you just kind of like add this on to it, people get kind of burnt out. And it tends to be your people of color and, and women who, you know, take on these jobs that you know you don't get credit for within the organization. And in some ways, it could make you more of a, a target if, if, if diversity and inclusion work isn't looked at as something that is adding to the bottom line and people are, you know, made to feel like, why are you spending time on that? So actually ha- having dedicated staff sends a a huge message or if you're going to use you know your existing staff to take on some of this stuff like compensating them for it is another huge piece of making sure that this isn't just an afterthought but that's something that is a part of everything that the, the the company does another big thing that organizations have to think about especially if you're at the beginning phases of this is anticipating pushback. 
I think, you know, ideally, you know, you have a company where everyone's like progressive and open to the idea of differences and, you know, of, of the tenets of diversity, equity and inclusion. But in many industries, many fields, that's not necessarily the case. Um, you may have people who for whom this is their first time learning about the idea of privilege or people who have seen perhaps people of color succeed in the spaces they've been in and say, well, I don't understand. Like, you know, why do we need to do this? And I think a big part of anticipating pushback is, you know, building that buy-in. So one way that I know my company, we we really press um, is the idea of anti-racist mindfulness. So, so often in conversations, we either avoid them or, you know, our, our emotions flare up and we're unable to continue having productive conversations because something that we've heard has has triggered us or something that we've experienced in the past. And so really giving people just like um, stress management techniques, breathing techniques, yoga, mantras, meditations that they can do either like in those moments or, you know, before approaching a difficult or courageous conversation to just help people sort of center themselves and recognize what emotions they're feeling, naming those emotions so that they can, you know, work to move past them and then get the job done. Cause that's what ultimately it requires. We can't run away the first time we feel uncomfortable. And the flip side, like experiencing racism is really, really stressful. And even being that one person of color or one of the few, you know, women of people of color in the room <laughs> who's been being asked to talk about these things, like that also it can be really, really stressful or just having experiences of it. So one, just like naming those feelings and like prioritizing the idea of psychological safety, but then giving people like tangible tools, like, okay, pause, breathe. Okay, restate what you heard so that you make sure that, you know, you're not just like going off of what you think the person said mm -hmm. or your assumptions, but that you, ac you actually give the person space to tell you, no, that's not actually what I meant. And then, you know, counting to 10 before giving a response. Like for some people, these are really, really helpful strategies to be able to even start. And like conversations are at the core of everything that, you know, a company has to be able to do in order to build that capacity and build that buy-in so people understand why we're doing it and why it's important. That was a really awesome interview and I loved what she had to share about her experience and thinking about things that we can do in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Colin, when we were doing some brainstorming on what we wanted to cover in this series, code switching was something super important to you to include. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's one of those things that is particularly important to me now because it's on the radar. It's a growing phrase that people are more familiar with. People are becoming a little more aware of what it actually means. And for me and a lot of people who look like me, this is a long lived experience and really something that you're never taught. It's just something that happens. And so I think the more awareness that's brought to it, the more that we can kind of understand just how much black folks and, and other people of color have to bring to work and in, and in any other situations, sometimes public situations. I think it's just a, a really important topic for people to 
dive a little deeper on and understand exactly what it means to code switch and how often we have to do it. And it's really to the point that I'm never walking into a room and actively thinking about it. I'm not reading a room and saying, okay, this is how I'm going to respond or this is how I'm going to speak, whatever. It's literally something that pretty much any black person can do in real time. And uh, sometimes people can navigate those situations a little better than others, but I think it's one of the most nuanced parts of diversity, equity, inclusion, and it just meant a lot to me to, to get this discussion out there and for people to understand. Why is it important for folks, particularly white folks, to understand that this is kind of a, honestly, like mental gymnastics that mm -hmm. folks need to do in navigating these different circumstances. Why is it important for us to like be aware that this is something that you need to do constantly? Well, I think one of the most common pieces of diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, efforts is bringing your full self to work, right? Like that might be in every code of conduct or every mission statement ever. But what does that actually mean? I think that there's an associated idea of professionalism and it very seldom aligns with blackness. It's almost exclusively tied into proximity to whiteness. And so I feel like if you're trying to encourage and foster a workplace culture that truly encourages people to be their full selves, it's kind of divorcing yourself from the idea of what professionalism is. I do think that there are things that we can point to that, you know, th there's certain language you shouldn't be using in a workplace. And I think that there's certain topics and, you know, certainly nothing that we're really talking about now. I think those, you know, DEI topics should be talked about more in the workplace. But I think, you know, you should be able to understand the line of things that are appropriate for work. That's why I feel like it's, it's particularly important, especially in the workplace. It was really interesting hearing Brandy talk about like dress codes mm -hmm. as being kind of uh, very, very related to this, this code switching and how dress codes in your average corporate situation are very oriented towards what is acceptable or um, what white men wear. Mm -hmm. And kind of the rest of the folks in the workplace need to try and, and, and assimilate to what that is, whether that is realistic to ask or, or not. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's definitely pieces of it that we can point to or like specific examples we can give. I think it's kind of like a figurative and literal top-down thing. I mean, you can start with hairstyles, whether it's straightening their hair or wearing it in a way that they've decided or been told is the most professional presenting, right? But there's only so many ways that black folks can wear their hair unless you're spending exorbitant amounts of money to make it straight. And how many black men out there want to grow their hair but don't? How many women out there, black women out there want to wear their hair naturally, grow an afro out or, or lock their hair and don't? That's another piece of the of the previous point of like talking about uh, bringing one's full self to work. This is how hair grows out of the head. There's not much that can be changed about that. And so then you can even translate that into what people are actually wearing. I mean, 
I think for people who are more familiar with this, know that in a lot of circumstances, black female bodies are over-sexualized and sexualized in a way that is typically unfair and a very extreme double standard that other women are not held to. So if you're talking about like what's professional, like wearing a business suit or something, what does that look like on these two different bodies, right? Like, and so then what does that mean if they try to wear that same thing that they think they're assimilating with and then it's accentuating natural curves or something and then then you're then it's turning into a a conversation about well oh why why would she wear that to work you know what i mean so like mm-hmm. there's there's just so many aspects to it i mean like even like small accessories and stuff like that like i'm i'm thinking about now like I, i'm i'm currently wearing two gold chains they're not enormous don't get me wrong i'm not you know on on the actual two chains tip but <laughs> but like this it's a, it's something that i would always wear on weekends and stuff but then i you know being at wisty i f- i feel more empowered to be myself and and wear the things that i like to wear anyways but then we're illustrating the issue right there right like i if i go into a place i'm going to dial back the things that I want to wear until I get a read of the room and it's like oh it's it's fine to wear this stuff no one's gonna think anything of it that's exactly it that is what code switching is like I'm going into a situation testing the water so to speak if the temperature's right then I'll go swimming but Mm -hmm. you know if it's too cold or it's too hot then you're gonna you're gonna adjust so when we think about code switching, there's also kind of marrying this with norms within different environments. So an example would be there are probably certain norms in any workplace or uh, Ron gave a great example of meeting the queen. There's always certain norms that are going to be expected of of anyone. How do you find the, the medium between being your authentic self and meeting kind of the expectations of certain circumstances. What, what degree is too much code switching? What is, I guess, normal expectations that I think everyone has to do to a degree? Sure. I mean, I think the easiest way to think of it is what are the types of conversations in the way that you speak around your friends on a Saturday night? at a house and what are the conversations that you have in a boardroom or, you know, a, a meeting room with your coworkers. I think to a degree, everyone has some idea of code switching because there's, you know, a professional mask or a professional self that we bring to work. And that doesn't necessarily have to involve previous topics that we've talked about, like proximity to whiteness. It's just like the language that you use and the language that you choose. And to me, that is not necessarily uniformly tied into who we are. I feel like if a codes, if a scenario that leads to code switching is an inhibitor or stopping someone from being who they are, this is more like the way someone talks rather than, or the way someone speaks rather than what they actually say. So, I think it's more of like a, a, a used language thing rather than like mm-hmm. 
you know what it what it actually sounds like to further drill down on that example it's kind of like the difference between um you know i i if i were to just pass by one of our our co-founders and i'm into you know a jacket that he's wearing and be like oh you know savage i really like that jacket man nice you know like, oh thanks colin you know whatever that's fine i'm like being myself i'm complimenting him the way i would anyone but you know i might not choose to walk up and be like savage that jacket is looking pretty drippy bro like you know like i don't you know like i might say that to one of my one of my coworkers or something but i don't know there's like just like situations where you can kind of like tailor your language to fit the scenario but you're still being yourself it's just like you know sometimes you just might choose to use different language uh in different scenarios and i think that is where there is like a level of code switching, I guess that is like acceptable. I think it's as long as it's not compromising who a person is, it's just, you know, uh, amending language in certain circumstances. I obviously don't need to do that as frequently, but was trying to reflect on like, I think everyone to an extent brings some filters to different interactions i think the degree or maybe like the strength of the filter varies pretty markedly based on like your identity and the expectations and proximity to whiteness but like i i i think or i hope that folks can relate to this going on in the background and recognize the different degrees we're asking of different people to do this. It's not just, okay, I'm meeting with my boss. I shouldn't swear. It's like, it's like a different degree that we are asking from a whole bunch of different folks that white folks don't need to, to do or worry about. But that's also, I guess why I like tried to, uh, I hope I like sufficiently explain this in the answer, but like, yes, like white people don't have to do it, but to like maybe shepherd understanding, it's like everybody code switches in some way. It's just like, Mm -hmm. there's a far more significant way that it happens (laughs) for, for some people, unless you're just like a categorically inappropriate person, you know, everybody knows like some way that they're going to, clean it up so to speak you know like they they put on the professional face everybody knows how to code switch in some way it's just like we're talking about full identities (laughs) for for some people this has been a production of wistia studios the hosts are me jane jackson and colin denny This episode was written, produced, and edited by Ron Dawson. Mixing by Olivia Richardson of Edit Audio. Many thanks to our guest, Brandy Blocker Anderson. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to her work, including the podcast she co-hosts, Not Another White Man's Podcast. If you like what we're doing on the show, please subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd also appreciate it if you'd leave us a rating and a review. That's it for this week. Happy Juneteenth, everybody. Get out there and celebrate. Support black businesses. Support black creatives. 
support black culture. And until next time, Obama out.